This week in KMA Land, Fremont County Sheriff's deputy killed in accident. Severe weather rolls through KMA Land again. Proponents and opponents weigh in on wind turbine project. Johnson Brothers Mill renovation plan announced. And Shen School Board backs Hamburg sharing agreement. I'm Mike Peterson. We begin this week's program with a sobering reminder of the dangers of law enforcement work this week. KMA Land residents were shaken by the news that Fremont County Sheriff's Deputy Austin Wayne Melvin Richardson was killed in a two-vehicle accident early Tuesday afternoon. The Iowa State Patrol says the 37-year-old Richardson's vehicle was northbound on Highway 275 near 260th Street when it collided with the southbound John Deere S770 Combine with dual front tires driven by 64-year-old James Groff. Authorities say the combine was wider than the southbound lane of the road, with the dual left front tire moving in the northbound lane. An investigation determined Richardson collided with the left front tire, causing his vehicle to skid sideways and roll several times before coming to rest on its left side. Scores of law enforcement and fire departments plus first responders participated in an escort transporting Richardson's body from the state medical examiner's office to Ankeny to the Rosh Goody Funeral Home in Hamburg Wednesday afternoon. Among those agencies, the Page County Sheriff's Office. Page County Sheriff Lyle Palmer tells KMA News his agency joined others in covering Fremont County as its Sheriff's Office is in mourning. As a neighboring agency, we uh, do everything we can to assist other agencies, um, show support. We've been trying to help cover a little bit. I know the State Patrol, Mills County Sheriff's Office, they've been doing a Everybody has been doing a great job pitching in in this time of need. Um, The last thing you really want in uh, this position is to have your mind somewhere else when you're trying to do this job. You have to have your senses about you, and a lot of times you have to make decisions in a split second, and that's why we try to have assist when we can. Palmer says the support is all part of the brotherhood of law enforcement. We may not always get along. We may not always see things in the same way from uh, different departments or different individuals to different individuals here that work in law enforcement, but when the going gets tough, we all step together and make sure we get the job done. Palmer acknowledges that Richardson's death is a grim reminder of the dangers of law enforcement work. One thing you'll find law enforcement doesn't really like to talk about is the death of another law enforcement member. It becomes a realization. We are all human. We are not superheroes. We are not anything other than the person next door most of the time. But there comes that time when those people have to step up and do something that is very difficult. And their families are the ones that usually pay in the end. Funeral services for Austin Melvin Richardson take place at 11 this morning at the Sydney Junior Senior High School with internment in the Hamburg Cemetery. Relief efforts are underway to assist Richardson's family. Donations may be sent to the Jennifer Richardson Support Fund at Malvern State Bank, 404 Main Street, Malvern, Iowa, 51551. Monetary donations plus gift cards for gas and groceries can be mailed to the Jennifer Richardson Fund at Hilltop Animal Hospital, 422 Main Street, Malvern, Iowa, 51551. Hot temperatures and an unstable atmosphere generated more bouts with severe weather this week. After strong thunderstorms danced through the area Saturday afternoon and evening, a more extensive outbreak Tuesday night and early Wednesday morning generated a pair of tornadoes, one of which hammered parts of Pottawatomie County. 
On Wednesday evening, the National Weather Service office in Omaha confirmed the touchdown of two EF-1 tornadoes Tuesday evening, including one in Cass County, Nebraska, north of Murdoch, and south-central Pottawatomie County, just three miles away, south of Trainer. According to Pottawatomie County Emergency Management Coordinator Doug Reed, the twister brought winds up to 100 miles per hour. After surveying the area with a team from the Weather Service, Reed says the damage included major damage to the Prairie Crossing Vineyard and Winery near Trainer, which he says was the epicenter of the tornado that dropped for nearly two miles. A lot of things that we saw ahead and, and, and after uh, kind of the, the area of the winery, a lot of uh, trees kind of snapped off at the higher levels, about a half dozen or so power poles that were snapped off or damaged, uh, a lot of tree debris uh, and, and issues like that. Reed says residential damage was typical of an intermittent tornado and strong winds, including missing or peeled back shingles or damaged gutters due to flying debris or falling trees. Currently at the Prairie Crossing Vineyard, damage includes severe structural damage to the event center, a missing roof from the production center, and debris and power lines scattered across the vineyard. Fortunately, Reed says no one was at the facility during the storm, but the damage is considered a total loss. While the damage was significant for some, Reed says it could have been much worse. tornado itself, based kind of on the damages that we could see, you know, ahead of that general area at that location and afterwards, was really trying to intensify and organize. Thankfully, it, it really never kind of organized into that classic tornado that everybody thinks about. It was pretty intermittent, you know, in its stability. Reed says over 60 structures were impacted by the storms hitting the area, along with a few parks and recreation areas receiving tree and debris damage. In his line of business, Reed says it's hard to know what to expect as Mother Nature can be unpredictable at times. But when it comes to tornadoes, he says all that can be done is to expect the worst and hope for the best. I think in this scenario, that's what we had. Um, you know, the, the tornado that did drop uh, did so in uh, rural areas where we don't have, uh, you know, concentration of population and properties and things like that. Uh, the location where it did the most damage. Nobody was there at the time. Tornado and severe thunderstorm warnings were also issued for Mills County as a strong storm cell entered from southeast Nebraska. Downed trees and power lines are numerous across the county from the storm. Mills County Emergency Management Coordinator Gabe Barney was busy the next day compiling damage reports. There was a couple of reports of property damage, some possible tornadoes that were by PJ. I have uh, some damage assessment crews going out there to check out to see if any of those were of significance. All in unincorporated areas, it seemed like. Damage was widespread in Glenwood. Glenwood City Administrator Amber Farnham says the city suffered a considerable amount of tree damage. She says the city opened a location for residents to dump their tree debris. City residents can bring their tree debris to um, the city softball field on Vine Street. It's behind there by the pickleball court. It's the same place we do our city cleanup. So that, that drop-off is now open. At one point Wednesday morning, Mid-American Energy officials reported more than 1,300 customers in Glenwood alone without electricity. That number dropped to zero as the day progressed. Plans for a proposed wind energy project in KMA land were outlined at a public meeting this week. Officials within Venergy hosted a special meeting on the proposed Shenandoah Hills turbine project at the Waterfall Wedding Venue in Farragut Monday evening. So-called subject matter experts and residents presented a wide range of information in the project, 
which would cover over 40,000 acres south of Shenandoah and Page in Fremont counties. Invenergy Development Manager Mark Crawls says nearly 45,000 acres have been secured through voluntary easements for the project. Well, there has been much debate on the minimum setback distance for non-participating landowners between officials and residents. Crawl says this project intends to have a larger distance than is required through the county ordinances. Take about a half mile around each and every one of those turbines and look at what residences are non-participating. Uh, the average distance to those non-participating residences is a little bit greater than 2,200 feet. Uh, so it really greatly exceeds, again, those minimums that are established there by the ordinance. Additionally, Crawl says for the most part, the wind company based its project on the more stringent requirements between the two county ordinances outside of county-specific guidelines. During the presentation, several speakers discussed development, environmental and engineering aspects, health and noise, property values, economic impact, and land usage. Mike Hankard, an acoustic engineer assisting on various projects, including wind over the past 30 years, says both county ordinances limit noise on an A-weighted decibel scale or using the term DBA. Hankard says Page County currently has a limit of 55 dBA, while Fremont sits at 50. You go to a rock concert, you're plus 100 dBA. 85 dBA is what the Occupational Safety and Health Administration limits noise in, say, a factory. If it's above that, you have to wear hearing protection. That's loud. Uh, 65 decibels is, is, is what a lot of the highway departments, uh, airports limit noise. Coming down further, 55 is a number that the U.S. EPA came up with years ago that they call protective of human health in a general sense. Dr. Mark Roberts, who spent 17 years with the State Health Department in Oklahoma before teaching nine years of occupational and environmental epidemiology at the University of Wisconsin, says that according to government reports done from around the world, there appears to be no direct connection between wind turbines and specific health conditions. Still, the shadow flicker caused at certain portions of the day can pose some risk. The issue with flicker is photosensitive epilepsy. And so what we see is that the Epilepsy Society was very clear in, in the UK about the association, what flicker, flicker level was required. It's, it's above 10 hertz. Whereas a wind turbine, um, when you look at, at their, their maximum speed, and um, under, under ideal circumstances, it would be about 0.75 hertz. Additionally, Roberts's international guidelines recommend no more than 30 hours per year of shadow flicker on a specific residence. Crawl says the Shenandoah Hills project is anticipated to generate nearly $115 million over the project's 25 to 40 year lifespan in terms of property taxes. Monday night's meeting did nothing to quell some Page County residents' angst over the project. As with meetings past, residents packed the Page County Courthouse's page room to air concerns during Tuesday's Page County Board of Supervisors meeting. During the meeting's public comment period, Todd Maher, who won the county's 2nd District Supervisor's Republican nomination in last week's primary election, accused the board of refusing to acknowledge what he says is a compromise on non-participating setbacks in the county's wind ordinance which is currently 1,500 feet from a residence. And you've had tons of citizens come up here, talk to you about the wind turbine project, and ask you specifically for a compromise, basically, and changing the ordinance and protecting those citizens that are non-participating and moving that setback back to the property line. 
And I think that's a small thing to be asking. Some residents also questioned whether an independent engineering firm had inspected the project. Jesse Stimson says he wants to ensure enough money is set aside for the decommissioning costs and cites a situation in Palo Alto County where the original amount listed in their ordinance wasn't enough for a proposed wind project. So had they gone with what the county or the Invenergy or the company had gone with, then they would have been far short. And so has JD or have you guys discussed the possibility of having a third party engineering firm come in that has no connection to Invenergy or any of the uh, Mid-America or to the county? More discussion and Invenergy Shenandoah Hills project is expected at a future board meeting. Renewed efforts to restore what many Shenandoah residents call an eyesore were announced at Tuesday's Shenandoah City Council meeting. Margaret Brady, owner of Melosia LLC, detailed plans to restore the venerable vacant Johnson Brothers Mill building into a warehouse and workshop to store rescued building materials for later use. Under Brady's plan, the warehouse would occupy the top two floors, with a workshop and office on the second floor. Plans call for placing an event center and retail business on the bottom floor. Brady, whose company has been involved in seven housing rehabilitation projects in the community, says the first renovation steps would include coating for three roofs, tuck pointing, and power washing of the building's exterior. I went to a tuck pointing specialist out of Corinda and got a true bid on what it would cost to firm up the outside of that building. Tuck pointing member is that the stuff that holds the bricks together. And if you look at that building, there's parts of that, especially up on the very top, it's kind of starting to fail. There's some bricks coming down. And then that, somebody said, it, the building looks like the building's crying. And it's an algae growth that's growing down the sides of the building. So it's part of the, what they do is they clean that all up and then treat those tiles on the outside to keep that from happening again. Another project includes replacing the structure's windows, including second sets of windows that failed and rotted over time. Those windows, my plan would be to replace them with a Pella window and match them back to the more the structural window that the rest of the building has. And then the rest of the windows, for now, as a warehouse, I would just repair the glass. Some of the, wood, the metal around it needs to be replaced, but we would just get it back to a satisfactory level that when you drove by, it looks like a functioning building. Other steps include replacing the concrete sidewalk around the building, installing new south garage doors, removal of the old mill equipment, and new plumbing, electrical, and HVAC systems. Estimates place the renovation project at more than $502,000. Brady's payment plan entails a three-pronged approach, including $250,000 in tax increment financing from the city. Also, Brady says the Johnson family would sell the building to Melosia for a nominal cost and contribute to the external rehab's cost. I know there's been several plans that people have tried to get to the point where they something would happen in that building. They've kind of all fallen through. So the family is motivated enough to make something positive happening. They are interested in giving a donation to the restoration of the building. Additionally, Brady's company would contribute financially and provide approximately 10,000 hours of work. In comparison, Brady says an estimate places the structure's demolition at $690,000. Brady also hopes to purchase the property, property underneath the structure still owned by Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railroad. Now, if all goes well, she says the renovation could be completed by Shenfest of 2023.
Also at the council meeting, Shenandoah officials signed on to efforts to preserve emergency medical services in the community. Council members unanimously approved a letter of support urging the Page and Fremont County Boards of Supervisors to declare the community's EMS operations an essential service. Shenandoah Medical Center CEO Matt Sells told the council statutes approved by the Iowa legislature allow for counties to levy for emergency services. The declaration is part of an effort to place the levy on the November general election ballot in both counties. The way that that works is that they would require a vote from the Board of Supervisors, a majority vote from the Board of Supervisors. They would then set it and approve that to go on the uh, ballot for public vote. At that point, it would require a 60% supermajority of the public. Uh, to, to vote and establish EMS as an essential service. Sells' state statutes limit the levy to $0.75 cents per $1,000 valuation. It's estimated the tax would generate up to $600,000 per year for emergency services. Sell says the additional revenue is needed to offset the rising costs of Shenandoah's ambulance service. He says the increased need for full-time staff members, coupled with decreasing volunteer help, are putting the city's EMS in tough financial constraints. This is a big problem, and it's something that you know we, we've consistently been able to provide a, a really uh, strong, guaranteed service. We want to continue to do that. But we've never faced challenges and the financial challenges and the ramifications that we're facing today. Shenandoah EMS Director Ty Davison says the levy is a good investment towards making sure the ambulance continues to respond to calls not only in Shenandoah, but in surrounding communities such as Essex, Farragut, and Corn. 75 cents per $1,000, in my opinion, and a lot of people's opinion, you need to look at it as a pretty cheap insurance that when you call 911, you're going to have somebody come and show up uh, to your emergency. With EMS... It's not if you ever need us, it's when you need us, unfortunately. And we hope to be able to come at a moment's notice for you. A similar EMS levy referendum is expected on the Mills County election ballot this fall. Page County officials this week took another step toward a proposed jail project. Meeting in regular session Tuesday morning, the county's Board of Supervisors approved the hiring of Samuels Group to perform Stage 2, or the schematic and design phase, for a new county jail by a 2-to-1 vote. The board previously worked with the architectural firm on a study of the current jail and determining the financial cost of installing various options for a new facility. The price for the next process is $25,000. Greg Wild is a business development manager with the Samuels Group. Wild says the process allows for a clearer picture of the proposed facility and its potential cost. It helps clearly define the nature of and scope of this proposed project and gets to a schematic design phase where you're actually putting programming spaces, uh, defining those spaces, and clearly defining the estimated cost for those spaces as well. While saying he's not against a new jail, Supervisor Jacob Holmes, who cast the loans as sending votes, says he's unsure if now is the right time to spend the $25,000 without the county knowing which previously presented plan they intend to pursue. Before we even start this thing, we give them this money. We really say, okay, we, we, we hammered this out and decided this is what we want drawn up. I don't know if we get in the middle of this and it's conflicting and then things change. Next year, things change and we're drawing something and we have to redraw it. That's from my favorites. We're going to draw this twice. I want to draw it once. Samuels Group presented the board with options including just a jail facility, other possible additions, including a new sheriff's office location, emergency management and 911 services, and a potential combined facility with the Clarinda Police Department with costs ranging from $12.5 million to $17.5 million. 
However, Wilde says the larger decisions can be part of stage two, which would garner public input. Once some of these, these bigger decisions are made and we have a what I'd call a napkin um, design idea concept, and then we begin to get some feedback from community members and, and a steering committee that will help in terms of um, guiding this process, not just for the board, but to represent um, the community as well. Wild adds it would likely be early 2023 at the earliest before the county could place a bond referendum before voters. There is literally no way to help you be prepared for a vote in September of this year. So the what we'd look ahead is the earliest opportunity that we would foresee for Page County would be perhaps March of next year. Wild says the schematic and design phase could last anywhere from four to six months, depending on how quickly the board comes to a consensus on which facility to pursue. Hamburg School District this week found a new option for its high school students. By unanimous vote, the Shenandoah School Board approved a tuition agreement with the Hamburg School District. Despite the launch of a charter high school this fall, Shenandoah School Superintendent Dr. Carrie Nelson says the Iowa Code and state education accreditation requirements mandate Hamburg to have a tuition agreement in place with another district for high school students. After becoming a K-8 district following the Farragut School District's closing in 2015, Hamburg's high school students were sent to Sydney under a previous tuition agreement. Nelson, however, says that agreement has not been renewed. They're at a point where they've not been able to renew their agreement for next year. I can't speak for all of the reasons why that's really a discussion between Sydney and Hamburg. However, Hamburg now has a charter school. Nelson says most Hamburg 9 through 12 students not enrolled in the charter school are still expected to attend classes in Sydney under open enrollment. Even if all of the students continue to go to Sydney, which we anticipate most of them will continue to go to Sydney, they still have to have an agreement with Sydney or with Shenandoah to be fully accredited. So Sydney it's anticipated that the majority of students will continue to go to Sydney. It makes sense because of the proximity and the relationship that they've had. But they do have a population of students who has started to express interest in going to school in Shenandoah. Though only three Hamburg students are expected to attend Shenandoah High School at this time, Nelson adds the agreement is the neighborly thing to do. It makes sense if we want to keep students in southwest Iowa that we work together with all of the schools and that if three students want to come here that we provide that opportunity. One caveat is that Hamburg would transport the students to Shenandoah. While saying she's not sure of the impact on athletic eligibility, Hamburg students may participate in extracurricular activities under the agreement. In an unrelated note, the board approved an agreement with Tarkio Technical Institute allowing Shenandoah High School students to receive credit for courses. Montgomery County residents owning all-terrain vehicles must pay an inspection fee following action by county officials this week. By unanimous vote Tuesday morning, the Montgomery County Board of Supervisors approved a resolution setting a $20 fee for inspection of off-highway vehicles. County Sheriff John Spinagle says the resolution covers ATVs, UTVs, motorcycles, boats, campers, trailers, and jet skis. Among other things, Spinagle says the fee reimburses the county for the time and expense involved in inspection and confirming if vehicles are previously registered or entered as stolen. There's four-wheelers all over the place out here that have no titles to them. And they have to go get the form. They have to bring them back. And with gas prices, if we got a deputy up in Grant, he's got to come all the way down to time and the gas. Spinagle says the inspection fee is connected with a measure approved in the Iowa legislature this session allowing ATVs and UTVs on county or state highways 
provided they're outfitted with proper safety equipment. Drivers must be 18 years old and carry liability insurance. Currently, the sheriff says his department inspects about 20 vehicles per year during the summer months. But he expects that number to increase if Governor Kim Reynolds signs the bill into law. I just look for a lot of ATVs, mostly. UTVs, maybe not so much, but ATVs, I look for a bunch to be coming in because everybody's going to want to get them registered. Spinagle says registrations help law enforcement keep track of the vehicles. It's like when Billy sells a four-wheeler that's never been registered to Tommy and Tommy sells it to John and the next thing you know it's 15 people down the line and nobody's ever registered. Now this new law's coming into effect. They want to get it registered so they can ride it on the road. It has to be expected. However, owners would be exempt from paying the fee if their vehicle is already registered. That wraps up this week in KMA Land. Be listening each week at this time for This Week in KMA Land. And for more information all the time, log on to KMALand.com where you can also hear this program in its entirety. For the entire KMA News team, this is Mike Peterson. Thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend. This has been a presentation of KMA News.